1971, the 60s were over, but the counterculture movement was still in full swing. It took a visionary like Hunter S. Thompson to see that the wave had crested and was receding. His book, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, is both a paragon of the counterculture and an early post-mortem to it. Based on two separate journalistic trips to Sin City, Fear and Loathing combines those real events and spins them into a drug-hazed debauch in search of the American dream. There is no greater exemplar of Thompson's style of gonzo journalism, a subjective blend of truth and outrageous fiction with the journalist himself as protagonist. We missed the 60s, so we thought we would shake up some Singapore slings and discuss Thompson's outrageous escapades in the bat country of the American West. Buy the ticket and take the ride with us. It's time for episode 66 of Toasting the Classics, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Welcome to Toasting the Classics. This is the podcast where we take something that people call a classic and we drink a drink related to the classic and decide whether it's still a classic. My name is Dave MacArthur. And my name is Clint Lanier. What did you choose for us this week? This is a book. I don't know how many people actually listen to these shows sequentially. I get the feeling people jump around quite a bit, mm-hmm. but we're out of order for the first time in the 65, 60 plus episodes we've been doing this because I completely lost track of what the last thing was. <laughs> we're going back to going back to basics with a book here. And, and right. uh, what- um, so we, so I chose the 1971 cult hit, actually just hit uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson. How did you read this? What was your what was your methodology? Did you own the book? I didn't own the book. I hadn't read it. I, I watched a, there's a pretty cool documentary on Netflix. I think it's on Netflix, maybe Amazon Prime on Hunter S. Thompson. Uh, right now, I think it might be called Gonzo. I'm not sure. It's, it's the most recent one. It's narrated by uh, Johnny Depp. I watched it. I'd always heard of, as a writer, I've always obviously heard about Thompson and He's one of those closer to our generations that you really should type, you know, read if you call yourself a writer. So, but I hadn't, I hadn't read anything by him. I think I'd read read small pieces by him, but nothing substantial. And so, it just kind of occurred to me, hey, let's let's read that a little bit longer than I thought it was. <laughs> I thought it'd be a really, oh, really? no, it's, it's not so bad. It's it's quick pretty, read. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty quick. So I read this years ago, and I had a okay. copy of it. Um, but like I've said many times, all my stuff is in storage. So. I felt kind of dumb buying the book again. So I got it on Amazon, whatever the instant thing we have on Kindle, Kindle Unlimited, yeah. I call it. Yeah. So it was technically a graphic novel, but it had all the words. Oh, how interesting. So, yeah. You know, I got a mental image. And I think that actually it's kind of appropriate because the original printing of this, or at least a lot of the material for it, I think had drawings along with it. Yeah, it had that drawings. Yeah, he um, he was. God, let me let me find his name. I know the name if I hear it because it's it's in his bio in his biography. He talks about him. Needman, maybe Stedman, Ralph Stedman. Stedman there we yeah, go. he was he was kind of a psychedelic artist of the age. He drew these just crazy pictures for it. So he did the illustrations. I think it was it was the, it was the very first piece that that Thompson did for this magazine called Scanlon's Monthly, and it was about the Kentucky Derby. Kentucky they Derby. paired. Decadent and yeah, yeah. Else. yeah. The, the Kentucky Derby is decadent and depraved, and it. They sent him there to cover the race. <laughs> it had nothing to do with the race. He was talking about all the people that went there and how crazy they were, druggies and and drunks and and depraved and depravity and stuff. Did you come and, to our uh, house and we did a Kentucky Derby party? Yes, I did. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah that was yeah. A, that was a fun one, actually. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't as depraved as perhaps it should have been. I think it could have no, been much more depraved. Could have done some more depravity. That would have yeah, been. but if the kids hadn't been there, I think. I think certainly that. Yeah, the kids are not there. It gets more. Yeah, different. yeah. So he was he was uh, paired up with this Steedman guy. Met him for the first time, and I think talked him into dropping acid the first time he met him. 
And Stedman which, had never. Which, which way did that go? Did, did, did Hunter S. Thompson? Yeah, Thompson got oh, Stedman. Stedman. Okay. Yeah. And Stedman, or, yeah, I guess it's Stedman. He, got, he dropped, had him drop acid the first time he met him. Stedman had never done it before. And he went just nuts. And then the whole the whole weekend was filled with, like, that's how Thompson rolled, man. He was a hard-drinking, hard-living dude, man. His his mixture of, like, the amount that he would take would kill a horse, you know, every day. Yeah, and so he just he just watched the people. He didn't even worry about the race. He watched the people. But the point is that fear and loathing yeah, that's, was... That's what I would do. That's what I would yeah. do. Yeah. Like going to Mardi Gras or something. I mean, you don't really right. pay attention to parades. You look at the insanity that's going on all around the parade. Absolutely. They just, uh, they paired up uh, from that one article uh, and, cool. you know, Fear and Loathing and everything that he did for Rolling Stone, Stedman would be, uh, be his, his illustrator. Basic synopsis, I think we should do here. We've got, this is the story of... Harness. How about before, before the basic synopsis? Okay, sure. Sure, sure. Let's get let's get a drink because I'm staring at it and I and I uh, I, I gotta I try it. Too. I haven't even tried it yet. I almost opened up my shaker like before I even got on. Yeah, I know. For some reason Me I too. just feel like having a drink in the afternoon today. Maybe because so, I've been on a table ship with a bunch of tiny little children. So. <laughs> yeah, don't blame me. So uh, for this drink, you know, as as always, we pair the classic with a drink that has something to do with with the classic. The opening scene of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas has them drinking Singapore slings. In Hollywood. Well, the opening so, scene in the car. Yeah, I guess it was a flashback where he, he's talking about how when they got the right. when he got the assignment. I guess I, I, I was go, I was going by I was going by chronology, not Chron- yeah. chronologically. Yes, it yeah. starts out right. They're 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 so, at a hotel drinking, and but it's pretty famous. The opening to the book, the whole um, the bad know, things. We were I don't know how far east of Barstow when the drugs started. When the drugs in. started kicking in, right? <laughs> Got to watch out for the goddamn bits. Yeah, watch out for the goddamn bits. <laughs> yeah, I tried watching the Johnny Depp like after I'd read the book and done sort of my half-butted internet research, and uh, I found Johnny Depp's portrayal of him so annoying. Maybe that goes. Away. I remember the first time I saw Forrest Gump, I, I was just I couldn't stand the way Tom Hanks yeah. was talking for the first time, <laughs> and then right. I got over. So maybe that would have happened with Johnny Depp. Yeah. Too. So uh, okay, so the drink is it's a Singapore sling. I, I made it the traditional way. It was actually created in Singapore, I believe, in in the 1920s. It's made with uh, the one that my recipe is uh, three quarter ounces gin, half ounce of Grand Marnier, half ounce of cherry liqueur, a half ounce of Benedictine herbal liqueur. Think of any herbal liqueur. I actually changed it for something called Nocino, which is another herbal liqueur that I had. I didn't want to go out and spend $50 exactly. on a bottle that I would use half ounce from. But you just need some type of herbal taste okay. in there. And then uh, let's see, it's got ounce of pineapple juice, half ounce of lime juice. I'm looking exactly. over on my counter and that's it. You throw, throw oh, and a, and a dash of bitters, throw all that in a cocktail shaker, shake it with ice, strain it over ice in a highball glass. And there you have the Singapore sling. So mine's probably a lot darker than yours because well, yours is much darker than mine. What's yeah. given all the colors at the Grand Marnier? Yeah, no, it's actually the, uh, it's the Nocino. So that's, that's like almost black. And then the uh, bitters are pretty dark as well, but it tastes okay. it tastes amazing. It it tastes it's going to taste a lot like like the the cheap classic. If you were to order this in a bar in Hollywood in the nineteen seventies, they probably just would have been gin and sweet and sour. Like that that's Singapore sling to, to like the cheap way to do it. And this has sweet and sour in it, but it also has a lot of the herbs. So it's got spices in it and stuff like that. It's pretty good. 
I was completely baffled this morning because I made these last night just to sort of practice. And my mm-hmm. wife was like, oh, let's try those. We're watching Yellowstone. She's like, let's let's try these these drinks. So this morning mm-hmm. she was like, what, what show are you guys doing that you needed the Tokyo Drift for? And I was like, Tokyo Drift. I had no <laughs> idea for a second. I was like, completely nonplussed. And I realized. Yeah. <laughs> so we tried it last night. I was completely daunted by the, the ingredients you're talking about. I have a very limited stock of cocktail making supplies here i found you you found me a pared down version which is just right. equal parts gin and pineapple juice and then mm-hmm. not quite half of what a little bit less than half of what you put in for those in lime juice yeah so yeah that's what i'm drinking it pretty much tastes like pineapple juice with gin in it i don't really <laughs> not, i don't highly recommend this what you're drinking sounds much tastier we're we're going out tonight and i promise i will drink a singapore sling a proper one a proper one, one. okay great so. I have, you know, I have a friend who, who is a bartender over on Long Island and, it, and it's at a really like reputable, well-known kind of cocktail program establishment. I should, I should, I'll find out his name and uh, give you his name and, and the place and go see him. He, he's, the guy's a cocktail writer and, and I mean, really knows his stuff. So cool. I would do he that can make you some, some really good stuff, but um, so thank you for that, for letting me uh, charge ahead of the drink. Um, oh yeah, no, uh, I'm happy to, happy to start so, sipping. Nice. So go it's for it. Go. So uh, great. It's good to be indoors with a drink. It's a good. Time. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I hate to tell you, but it's it's about 63 degrees out here and sunny. And uh... it's actually about 63 degrees here. It's been oh, very okay. warm so far this year, but it's rainy. We were out on a ship on the, on the Hudson River. And it was oh, raining. that's cold though. Yeah, and that's a little unpleasant. So yeah. It's, wet. Um, it's not cold. It's not cold at all. It hasn't been, it hasn't hardly been cold at all yet. I'm still dreading it. I had a nightmare about getting through the winter the other day i think i've built it up in my head as a big deal <laughs> even though i originally am from the east coast i'm just like worried about it yeah you, you lost a bit of your uh, bit of your your, your edge <clears throat> all right so go ahead and uh, give us a synopsis of uh, fear and loathing so the synopsis is and everything that takes place in this book is through this just this drug and alcohol induced haze and confusion uh what's the what's the phrase stream of consciousness and it's a description of his trip to cover a motorcycle race in the desert outside of Las Vegas. And that gets, he does that, he goes and he sees a little bit of it and they write about it. Mostly he's just intoxicated off his mind the whole time. And then the second he gets called to another one, which is a conference, uh, like an anti-drug conference for police officers from all over the country. And he's there ostensibly as a journalist, but again, is it's hard to say whether this is all true, of course, because these these events did happen. Uh, we can get into later the whole concept of gonzo journalism and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But essentially, the synopsis is a journalist is sent to cover two different conferences in Las Vegas and gets mm-hmm. through them well and then just a mind-numbing drug vendor. Stream of consciousness description of all that. And it is a commentary on the end of the counterculture movement of the 1960s. This is like... I think it's after Watergate has happened, right? Or it's right about that same time. No, so, I think it, it's uh, 70. So it happened. Yeah, 70. 1970. I think, okay, yeah, earlier. published in 71. Yeah. Right. He had his attorney with him in the book who is uh, a stand-in for an actual person that we can talk about later. Um, but in the book, he has a Samoan attorney who's just as crazy as he is, if not crazier, in terms of the drugs and the violence and everything. Um, and the two of them somehow managed to get through this weekend without killing each other or anyone else. <laughs> right. uh, they don't get arrested. It's kind of a miracle how they survive it. But um, that's what, that's the story. I don't know. Maybe I've missed out on some of the plot. You could, you could fill in some details. I, 
I mean, that's that's the that really is the gist of it. There are a lot of I think minor characters, uh, including his cars. Uh, his cars play a big part in this, yeah. the first time. It's the the red shark, so it's like yeah. this big red convertible. The yeah, white, no, it's the red one and the white one. They got two convertibles. I think the white. I think it's a white whale and the red shark. White whale. There we go. Yeah. That's Right. So he starts off with that. He ends up getting another another convertible Cadillac. It's a white, big white Cadillac. Calls out with a white whale, and they tear the crap out of those. I liken it to like a drunk frat spring break, from you know fraternity guys spring break from like circa nineteen ninety three or something. Right. Just absolute bedlam and debauchery and tons of drugs and tons of drinking and right. yeah, no respect for anything. It's kind of like this the courage that you get when on drugs or drinking, you know, just absolutely running coursing through their veins. The courage to do a lot of crazy stuff and say right. a lot of crazy stuff, but then also these huge bouts of paranoia. He spends yes. a lot of time like just yes. terrified, you know, that he's going to get arrested for all the things that he's done, which right. is pretty reasonable considering how crazy these guys are behaving. Right. Right. Yeah. So he spends a lot of time kind of imagining scenarios that never happened. Like, you know, when the cop does this, I'm going to tell him this, you know, and, Right. And then he, and then he, then he, he, it's almost like that, that JD Salinger. Oh. Yeah. Hold him. So when Holden's in the hotel and he's imagining the pimp, like beat him up or shot him or something like that. And he's, he's doing all, he's like going through the story in his mind and everything that would happen and everything he would say. Yeah. Thompson sort of does that. He does like, you know, the cop's going to come up to me and I'm going to tell him this. And then he's going to say you, this. You ever do that? You ever do that inside your head? I, there, there was an onion article one time that said, um, imaginary argument getting pretty intense. <laughs> I was thinking like I've done that. Like I thought like, oh, if somebody says this, I'm gonna say that. And then I'm yeah. gonna say this and I'm gonna and I'm right, like, right. you know, a minute into it, I'm like, what am I doing? Like, this is not a real argument, you know. You gets it gets so bad that you want the argument to happen. Exactly. Just well, you, so prepared you, can... all, you prepared all your comments. Yeah, you know? exactly. So, right. So uh, as a lawyer, you must appreciate that. Yeah, this does put a certain spin on uh on on law. I think you and I can need to go to Vegas just so I can say I'm with my attorney. The entire go. time. Yeah, I think that would be great. Go get you a PI card. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be a doctor of divinity myself. But so if we were really a gorilla podcast, obviously we wouldn't just be drinking Singapore slings. We'd be like huffing ether, one of the many terrible things that go on. What what drugs get mentioned in this? Book? Okay. I, mean, I, 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 I have the list. You ready? Okay. Okay. All right. So at the very beginning, he says that he became sidetracked. They became sidetracked by a search for the American dream. Mm -hmm. Two bags of grass, 75 pellets of mescaline, five sheets of high-powered blotter acid, a salt shaker half full of cocaine, and a whole galaxy of multicolored uppers, downers, screamers, laughers, and also a quarter of tequila, a quarter of rum, a case of Budweiser, a pint of raw ether, and, yeah. and two dozen amyls. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. And he does uh, say that they're not really intending on using all of that on this trip, but then they end up, I think, using almost. They all use of all of. They use all of them. Yeah. So, well, yeah. It was. I think I it was just. If you have mescaline. I've never. Yeah. Obviously, I've never done mescaline. But you're saying if you have mescaline, I feel like that's what you're doing. No, you're doing that. Isn't that what you're doing this weekend? That's not like some. You don't like combine that with a whole bunch of other things. Like. Well, and they and they did that. Uh, like mm -hmm. often, they they would take a sheet of acid. Yeah. And then water take mescaline. Acid, acid just means LSD, right? That's not right. I think so. Yeah. Um, and then they're obviously drinking the whole time and just drinking straight stuff. There's also it doesn't mention it, but he drank mescal throughout oh. it, which is crazy because I think they we never mescal. hear of people drinking mescal back in 
that oh you know what shit they're I, the southwest they're hip to the jive right they know they know about this call back in those i was days. supposed to uh top off my drink with club soda i forgot that oh were you really maybe i was that actually i feel like that would make this better although i don't actually have club soda but i would have gotten this if i'd known i was supposed to do that that would be nice i came down and the kids had gotten into the pineapple juice i left it on the table and cleo had opened oh. up which i was like no that's for daddy. <laughs> Kids are like to pineapple juice, like Ansar to sugar. I mean, they just pretty find much. it. And, yeah, there was and they a trail will... of kids leading into my yeah, kitchen. Pretty much. Yeah, but basically anything sweet that I leave mm. around the house, the kids are going to get into. You know, the club the club soda actually cuts down the uh, the sweetness just just a little bit, just enough. It's pretty good. I think that would be really good, actually. Yeah. I really would like to add that. I'm, I'm definitely, I'm actually going to order a Singapore sling. We're going, uh, Karina's getting home early. We're going to go to the Met. Uh, they have late hours on Friday, so we're going to go and see the new um divot on the tutors for the english oh, cool. and then we're gonna cool. go get a drink go get a cocktail somewhere or something so i get a single cool. assuming Very you cool. can order that in bars which i think you can I'll, I'll yeah i think if you go to a like a cocktail place not like just some street bar or something um, oh, those are my favorite though the street bars i like those yeah so he was known for gonzo journalism that right. was his that was his shtick right yep i watched um, an interview with him uh mm -hmm. today I would guess this was from the late 70s, maybe even around 1980 or so. He was being interviewed about what Gonzo Journalist has. And he said, essentially, there was a period in his career where he was working so fast and having to send things in so fast that he ended up just taking his notes, from whatever he was attending, and sending the notes directly to the printer. I don't know how you do it in those days, in the, in the late 60s, maybe some kind of teletype or telegram. Yeah, there's like a, it was almost like an early, early fax machine that, that he was... was like that's he what was, I was picturing. Exactly. Yeah, he was given. And this thing was like, it was like the size of a washing machine. It was huge. You never think about like communications and stuff like that. This is getting a little bit off the track, but we went to um, uh, Central High School in Arkansas uh, where where the kids were being blocked from, the integration of the school was being blocked and they had to send in the troops to, to integrate the school. Anyway, they, we were watching this thing. We were talking about the national reporting on the event. And I was like, this was in the 50s. How could there be national reporting on the event? And I actually had to look it up. They did have like a cable that could send television around the country pretty early. Like in, in right. the 50s. There was quite a bit of telecommunications infrastructure that we don't think about now because we're just like, well, how do you do anything without the internet? Right, right. That is everything. So, but Well, there's, I mean, famously, the uh, what was the stock? There's a stock thing, uh, the ticker tape. What was the name for it? It's, it, it? And you would have to subscribe to it. But you'd have this ticker tape thing. It would give out stock. Is that what teletype is? I, I don't. Maybe I think I thought there was a certain name well, for it. I though. mean, it's like already this stuff was around when we were kids, and it's already like lost to history almost. How the heck did people get information around the country before the internet? It's so right, so ubiquitous that. But anyway, so so he had, he was just sending his notes instantly and having them printed as they were, which turned mm -hmm. into people would be like, "Well, this is your style." It was almost like right. a stream of consciousness journalism. And some guy referred to it as Gonzo, and he repeated that. And it almost seemed like he was he was sitting there in this interview and he was saying, I get annoyed with having to justify the term Gonzo because I didn't really make it up. It just stuck. It sounded good. You know, and this is this is the style that I have is that essentially what it has come to mean. I think this interviewer was almost proving what I think, which is that people were sort of creating a definition of what gonzo journalism is the interviewer is telling me he's like well it's sort of you go there and you're subject you're part of you're part of the events that are happening you're there and you right. write subjectively because you're a part of it and that's gonzo journalism and hunter s thompson was kind of like yeah i guess so i guess that's what it is it's different than what tom wolf does is what he he seems to have a um 
a rivalry with Tom Wolf. So we should, we yeah. should do a Tom Wolf book. I, I read uh, Right Stuff. And he's, he's really good. But so yeah, so it was actually that that uh, Kentucky Derby article. That's the one. And also, his big Hell's Angels book, I think, was his number one thing. The the thing that he really got famous for doing was the Hell's Angels. Book. Yeah, the Hell's Angel. Well, Hell's Angel. That's where he established that he's like a, an immersive journalist. Like a, he he's, he participates in whatever it is, right? Right. He doesn't just sit back and observe or, or talk about what happens uh, based on other accounts. Like he becomes part of it. He got beat up by the Hell's Angels really bad because right. he got in an argument. I watched an interview with that. There was another one where he's confronting with a guy from the Hell's Angels, and the guy was he was saying, "Well, you were stupid. The reason you got beat up is because you told this guy to stop beating up his wife." Right. <laughs> right. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. not, don't admit that you're on the side of the guy that was like, yeah. it sounded to me like Hunter his, his, was on the right end of that one. But don't you mean the, uh, his old lady? His old lady. Yes, it, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, his old lady. And the, the worst part was that he also kicked his dog. Yeah. He kicked his dog. Well, the dog wow. bit him. The dog bit him because uh, he was beating up the old lady. And then Hunter S. Thompson jumped in because he's beating up this, this woman. And, and then the whole gang stomped right. him. And the whole, whole gang stomped him. Is what they, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That actually sounded. I actually thought I might be interested in reading that book, "The Hell's Angels." Mark, do you think I? Do you think I captured? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, according to art, an article about it, he was writing that Kentucky Derby article. He said that uh, he was he was up against the deadline and just started tearing pages out of his notebook and right. sending it directly. And yeah. so they would publish these these crazy accounts of things that happened and and so forth. And uh, so that was part of it. It was kind of this first person stream of consciousness. But it's based on notes, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, fear and loathing in Las Vegas is based on tapes. Oh. So they 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 push the tape player that, that to uh, record as soon as they got in the car, and they taped everything that happened. Supposedly, mm-hmm. he taped everything that happened uh, because he was going to be drugged up and drunk. He couldn't remember, right? right? So he sent those to the editor as well. Great idea. I should start doing that when I'm out sometime, just like yeah. record notes about what's happening. Anyway, he, he's just, you know, he was irreverent. Yeah, you could say that. He was paranoid. I think that was part of his nature was paranoia. And, and I think he was a bit like kind of full of himself a, a little bit, calling himself Dr. Thompson and stuff like that. He was just a little bit, he had an ego. His name is Raul Duke in the book, right? Yes. He's a character in the book, but Raul Duke's also a name he uses for things. He used that as a pseudonym. Certain things were written by Raul Duke. It wasn't, and he'd say, well, I didn't write it. You know, Duke, right. Raul right, Duke right. wrote it, but it was, everybody was in on the joke, you know? You know, what's interesting is that Doonesbury. Okay. Yeah. Do you, do you remember the Duke character? Yes. Uncle Duke? Oh, and that's he's got glasses and he looks that's who it like is. Yeah. I think I did know that at some yeah. point in my life, but yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. He uh, basically completely... The yeah. hat. He's got the glasses. Yeah, that's got, right. yeah. Safari hat, glasses. He's got the the cigarette right. holder. Uh, Gary Trudeau. Gary Trudeau. I thought he was like the prime minister of Canada. No, <laughs> that's Justin Trudeau. Justin Trudeau. No. That's why I can't remember it. Justin Trudeau has replaced <laughs> Gary Trudeau in my head. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I used to read Doonesbury when I was a kid. I always was, had the impression that I was coming in late on Doonesbury. I know. Well, I never that understood. It been a lot funnier, you know, twenty years before me. I never understood it because. It was, you know, I would read it as a, I was a little kid. So I get the yeah. paper and right. oh, here's a, here's a comic strip. And then I'd read it and I'd be like, that's not that funny. Yeah. <laughs> I don't get it. Right. Because it was just, one you had to follow. Like, I think you, if you watched, if you read it all the time, it would have been. Well, it's also political commentary. And I didn't. It's political commentary. Yeah. You know, 
I never found Family Circus funny either. You know what? Family Circus has a bad rap, but I think Family Circus had some funny panels. Every well, time. it appeals it appeals to parents, not yeah. children. Yep. It appeals to your mom will laugh when she reads it, but you'll read it and be like, what? what? This is, oh, yeah. I don't get it. This is dumb. What is his appeal, you think? I might not be the person to ask about this because frankly, I don't love his stuff. I'm interested okay. in reading the Hells Angels thing because I feel like I might learn a little bit more from that. Mm-hmm. But this one just seems like somebody getting intoxicated for 200 pages and then just writing it down. I, I don't know yeah. that I really, I guess this would have hit you in 1970, 1971, if you were a young person in the counterculture or, or even adjacent to the counterculture or aware of the counterculture, anything edgy would have been really, really, you would have eaten it up in 1971. You know, I mean, this mm-hmm. is pre-Watergate. This is before everything really changed. I think we talk about the 60s, but I think Watergate's the moment when things really change. And the end of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I think this this would have hit you like a big deal, but to me, it's just kind of what's he talking about? You know, I mean, it's just a <laughs> bunch of drugs, and it's a bunch. Of, I, I don't love his stuff. I I had I, I read this years and years ago. I had a book called Hey Rube because I think he did a column called Hey Rube for Sports Illustrated for years, mm-hmm. and I had a book that was a collection of his stories from that. And by that point in his life, he was just like a jaded, angry. You know, he was, you could already tell he was suicidal. He was an alcoholic, a big gambler. He was always talking about gambling in those articles and stuff. It was just grew to not really like, like the guy in some ways, even though I probably, I think if I'd been a contemporary, I probably would have thought he was really cool. I kind of put myself in my dad's shoes and I'm like, I probably would have been into this guy. But mm-hmm. 30 years later, it seems, you know, on the other side of Reagan, this seems kind of lame. You know, <laughs> right. It just kind of seems like. And it's kind of what he's commenting on, right? A lot in this book is he's talking about the, the end of the counterculture and the, the moment when the wave of the hippies broke. I think he refers to that. We're saying you could, you could stand on a mountain west, uh, east or west, west of Las Vegas and look down and see the moment when the wave broke and then receded mm-hmm. like, of the counterculture. And it's kind of, you know, to me, like I said, as someone who grew up on the other side of Reagan, I look at it and I'm like, yeah, it's a bunch of people trying to do drugs and drink and have sex and enjoy that. And mm-hmm. that's wonderful, but it's really not particularly deep. That doesn't yeah. really say much that you're just gratifying yourself. Basically. It's not really, yeah. I don't find that to be a deep intellectual movement. And actually I think Hunter S Thompson said some of those things himself. He talked about the hippie movement as being not as artistic as the beat generation, Right. Right. Like they were they were doing some of this stuff, but it was a part of like Kerouac was an artist and Burroughs is an artist and Ginsburg and all those guys are legitimate artists also. And then also not as intellectual as some of the left leaning people that were around in the 60s, the the Mm -hmm. new left. I don't actually know what that refers to. I don't know who that is. So I'm stupid, but you're 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 in academia. I'm sure you know all about the new left. Right. I'm sure, oh, they're big, well, not, I'm sure they're big heroes of yours. <clears throat> well, I think the new left was the 1968 Democratic Convention, uh, Abby okay. Hoffman and and the uh, the Chicago right. Eight okay. and those guys, because okay. they're you know they're Democrats, but they're like they're the new left. They're not. But those know, but not, those were smart intellectual guys that had that were. I, I don't know if I don't know if you necessarily agree with them, but they had a mission and something they were trying to do. Right. Well, I think that, and I think that's who the audience is, like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I think that's who the audience is. So I mean. So he wrote this ultimately for Rolling Stone as like, I think a two part, that would have been, they would have been a really long article, but like two parts. And I think, I think he may have published two separate articles for Rolling Stone about these two different conferences and then combined them into a fictional work. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. I think that's the publication Um, history there. 
But I mean, the audience would have been more of a highbrow intellectual audience. I mean, it, it was people like Rolling Stone, quickly, it went from music to culture, you know, he's not writing to hippies, he's writing to, he's writing to people like probably Abby Hoffman and all these, right. you know, these leftist, these left leaning leftist. Well, Abby Hoffman is pretty leftist, but these very, these very, these very left leaning kind of intellectuals, right? Um, Young intellectuals, because there was a movement. And I think the counterculture movement was part of that. It wasn't just hippies. It was all of that. Counterculture is a broader umbrella term for all these different things. Right. And I think he sort of sees it like 1968, Nixon is elected. Mm-hmm. And I think that was probably the end of it. And, and I think he he mentions as much like the end was Nixon. They had Democrats in the White House and there was a chance and they, they looked on the uh, the Republicans as, as a real sort of like owned by corporations. And, you know, right. I mean, pretty much everything they say about them now still they're saying about them. Back well, they then. looked on them as being just the past as not re- yeah. representing any current movement. And that, and it's very similar to what happened like when Trump was elected, I think it's sort of the same thing. I think people were like, well, wait a minute, this is still around. Like, this is not, this is not something that the whole country is moving past. This is people who are different than me, who have a different take on things still exist. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily older than me and about to die. Like they're they're It's like a vibrant well, movement of its own, yeah. something that still needs to be dealt with. So yeah. I mean, I think that I think honestly, my take on this has always been that the stakes were much higher in the 60s than what we're dealing with today. People are so bent out of shape of what's going on today. But I think the situation in the country and the world was the stakes were much higher back then. Maybe so. But I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, I get I get what he's doing here. He's, you know, ultimately becomes about trying to find the American dream. Right. And uh, so go to Las Vegas and try to find the American dream. And so what he finds is. You know these cops at the cop convention, right? And and they all turn out to be a bunch of idiots. Uh, everybody else is pretty like, buttoned down and stodgy, and it's like a Republican convention, right? But at the same time, they're, they're kind of worshiping at the altar of the ultimate Babylon of of Las Vegas, right? You know what strikes me about what goes on at that co- at that convention, the police convention, though, is. Okay, so the attitudes are obviously conservative. They're cops, you know. I mean, it's they're going to be a, a more conservative type of person. But the the misinformation yeah. is what shocks me. Like today, if you went to a conference of cops in Las Vegas about drugs, mm-hmm. they would be conservative guys. They'd be blue collar conservative guys, but they would not just not know how drugs work. They wouldn't just be right. yeah. in the dark about how they're well, taught, they, like the things that they're fighting. They, yeah. It's just so much more information today. Like it was just ridiculous. I can't remember. You know, the way they were talking about dope fiends, but what they mean is like people that smoke marijuana. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. You know, that yeah. All they think about is, I'm like, okay. I, you know, and if you don't do drugs, you're, you're, you're square. There's like this scale, you know, you're with it, you're, mm-hmm. you, you jive. Yeah, you're hip or you're, or you're yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're right. square, right? But like somebody, yeah. but somebody put together like a, like the contemporary equivalent of a PowerPoint where like it was right, one, pretty much yeah, pretty much two square. You know, if, you, if you watch any of those old, old, old drug films, like Reefer oh, yeah, Madness and Reef stuff Reef like that, that that's, yeah, you know, like th- that. that's, that's how they, they thought of it. I mean, they, they didn't, they never partook of it themselves. Oh, heavens to Betsy. You know, they had all these kind of presuppositions about how people acted and the type of people who do it. I think that's something that he enjoyed. The people who did it were long haired hippies or ne'er-do-wells, right? Throughout the book, he, he refers to himself as a respected journalist. 
He's a respected journalist. Respected journalist. Well, he's a doctor of journalism before he's a doctor of divinity. You know, he would never do it, but yet he's beaked out. Did you hear the story about the entire time? Did you hear the story about he ran for sheriff of Aspen Mm -hmm. uh, back in the seventies? I think his opponent was like the super conservative guy, one of these guys with a crew cut, you know, from the fifties. The you know people that were holdover from the fifties. So he he shaved his head completely. And kept yep. referring to his opponent as my long-haired, my long-haired, uh, <laughs> my long-haired opponent. He had some pretty good ideas. He was actually kind of ahead of his time. He wanted to change the name of Aspen, Colorado, to Fat City, right? So it wouldn't sound as as appealing for tourists and people moving there. He wanted to yeah. tear up all the roads and devote them to grassed walkways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he like had his whole list. Basically, it was. You know, quit ruining my town. He wanted the tourists and the corporations to stop coming there. You you can't put one hundred percent faith in that any you know in that anything uh, any no. of this happened no. at all. And I don't know whether it's um, because he's intoxicated or whether it's because he's a liar. Uh, it's hard to it's hard to tell. Well, and I think I think it's it's also because that's the the style of Gonzo is he could uh, use hyperbole. He could you know right. um, exaggerate. He could. Obviously, he's changing names. He's doing things like that. Might change locations, right. uh, order of events, magnitude of events. I, I found it. I found it really interesting. I found it. I found it kind of compelling. And I, and I guess why is because it was so different. And that's sort of what people latch onto. You know, if you look at any anybody you've ever heard of, you've only heard of them because they did something different than anybody else. Okay. Because if they did the same thing as anybody else, you'd never have heard of them. And so he broke out by accident, you know, by sending in his notebook because he was he was you know right. up up against it. But he was also he was also a fantastic drug user, not fantastic in the sense of oh that's wonderful, but fantastic as in oh my god I can't believe he snorted that much coke. I, I mean, can't he, believe some of these people survive. Like let's see, if I have too many drinks. Like the next day, I feel like I have the flu. I can't do anything. I don't know how these people live these lives. Like maybe they just respond differently to things. I don't know how somebody survives being like, I mean, he died in like 2000, maybe 2000, 2001, something like that. And he shot nah, himself. He yeah, didn't die, shot himself he, didn't yeah. he didn't die directly of anything to do with drugs or the alcohol or anything. Well, let me read you. I mean, by the time he killed himself, though, I mean, he was just absolutely a shell of himself. So this is this is his routine. Uh, according to a reporter that was allowed to follow him during the yeah. day, and this is this is in I think do 1990. Okay, so it's a book written in 94 okay. by journalist Jean Carroll. Um, it's called Hunter: The Strange and Savage Life of Hunter S. Thompson. So this is the routine according to this essentially biography. He wakes up at 3 p.m. at 3:05. Uh, he pours a or he has a Shavaz Regal, so he has a scotch with his morning papers and a Dunhill cigarette. 3.45 p.m., he snorts cocaine. 3.50, he has another glass of Shavaz and another cigarette. At 4, I guess, 05, yeah, 4.05, first cup of coffee and another cigarette. 4.15, cocaine. 4.16, orange (laughs) juice and a a cigarette. 4.30, (laughs) cocaine. 4.54, cocaine. I'm not done. 5.05, cocaine. 5.11 is coffee. And a Dunhill cigarette. Wow. Five thirty, uh, he adds more ice. Has another scotch. Five forty-five has Coke. Six p.m., uh, he has a joint. 
<laughs> at 7.05, he goes down to Woody Creek Tavern for lunch. 7.05 p.m. Goes down okay. to the tavern for lunch. His lunch is a Heineken, two margaritas, two cheeseburgers, two orders of fries, cocaine, <laughs> a plate, a plate of tomatoes, coleslaw, and ta- a taco salad, a double order of onion rings, carrot cake, ice cream, bean fritter, a cigarette, another Heineken, cocaine, and for the ride home, <laughs> and for the ride home, a snow cone, which is a glass of shredded ice over which is poured three or four jiggers of, of scotch. No, I don't know how I don't know how you survive. I don't know I'm not done. Not done. Oh, 9 p.m. Sorry. cocaine, 10 p.m. drops acid, 11 p.m. chartreuse, which is totally terrible I liquor. Think I've had chartreuse. Yeah, that's uh, cocaine and pot, 11:30 coke, midnight. At midnight, Hunter's ready to start writing. 12:05 to 6 a.m. He drinks chartreuse, has cocaine, uh, pot, Shavaz, coffee, Heineken, clove cigarettes, grapefruit, Dunhills, orange juice, and gin. At 6 a.m. He goes to the hot tub, has a champagne, a Dove bar, and fettuccine Alfredo. At 8.20, he sleeps. Wow. 8.20 in the morning, the next morning. That's his daily routine. Yeah. I'm surprised he's up it, as early as he is, like according to He made it to 67 and killed himself, I think, in 2005. So, hmm. <sighs> Yeah, that's a that hard, will, that's hard at, at 67, and you see the pictures of him at like 67 towards the end. He looked terrible. I mean, he okay. looked just oh, shriveled me, up and I'm going to look that up while we're, while we're talking, but yeah, yeah look, look at him, look at him in 1970 when he does like fear and loathing and then look at him. No, I've seen that. Like, I've seen the pictures of him young. One of the bars I visited for my book, bucket list bars, which is available now on, on uh, Amazon. It was, we went to new Orleans and we visited this bar called the French 75 bar. Oh, okay. uh, it's this old historic do remember, hotel. Do you remember where that was? Yeah. It's uh it's not on bourbon. It's off of bourbon though. It's in the, the French set. Section of course, French Quarter, seventy-five bar, New Orleans. I don't know. He looks old. I, he doesn't. He just looks old. So it's in it's in Arnaud's restaurant on Bienville, Bienville. Oh, you're in the quarter. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, in the quarter. And I was talking to the bartender there, Chris Hanna, and uh, fantastic. Chris okay. Hanna is a fantastic bartender. Anyway, we're at this bar. <laughs> Chris Hanna's there, fantastic okay. bartender, and it's a great bar. I mean, and it's a a really kind of expensive. You know, cocktail lounge, cocktail type of bar, and uh, I asked him. So, actually, I guess my my co-author for my book, Bucket List Bars, which is available on Amazon, asked him. Can we you know, so who that start being just like a bit we do, like we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So uh, he he asked him, you know, what what you know celebrities have been in here, who have been your favorites or something. And he says, uh, my favorite was when Hunter S. Thompson came in with Johnny uh, Depp. Uh, really? Johnny Depp, Johnny Depp, and I can't remember somebody else, another famous celebrity, came in with uh, Hunter S. Thompson. They're driving a convertible. They parked it out in the street. They had to carry him in. This is when he was in a wheelchair because he was pretty much in a limited to a wheelchair at the end because he was oh, just wow. he completely destroyed his body. Well, yeah. So they brought geez. brought him in. They sat him up at the bar, and the uh, the manager thought that he was well, he was drunk, but he's like, no, we can't serve that guy. Get him out of the bar. And Chris uh-huh. is like, hey, I'll take care of this. It's on me. Because Chris recognized who it was. And I was like, it's on me. And so he just started drinking everything under the sun. And we said, well, what do you, uh, you know, do anything surprise you about it? It's like that guy uses the F word more than anybody I've ever seen. Wow. He, he uses it routinely because the F is, hey, pass me that F and drink. Or can you give me an F and ashtray? Hey, MF, come over here real quick. <laughs> but he doesn't do it like, yeah. I don't know, not, not in a, I don't know. Mean and threatening a, way. He just uses it. 
I think some people, when they get super intoxicated, they sort of start. To, I, I had a friend who was a little bit of a closet alcoholic, and it took it took all of us a little while to catch on to it because you're not talking about me, are you? No, no, we're, we have an intervention stage for you. Okay. Uh, it's com- coming up okay. next week. Good, good, good. Well, this okay. is uh, this is somebody else, but uh, we all realized that he started dropping the f bomb every other uh-huh. word. That uh-huh. it was time. It was time to figure out where, <laughs> where he hit in a bottle and where what, 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 <laughs> you know. So yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it was, there's those. Was normally, normally he's a very soft spoken guy, perfectly. Yeah. But like all of a sudden, he'd be like, "F this," and you're an effort. <laughs> like, okay, man. All right. There are those tells, aren't there? They really um, are. Really are those tells exactly. So he, um, you know, another thing, he he uh, he sort of idolized uh, Hemingway, and I, I wondered it's if there was any. Like it's probably why he shot I want, himself, Yeah, I was. I was going to say, you know, Hemingway was a. He lived hard too. I don't think Hemingway used drugs. He might have. They weren't really associated in Hemingway's day as they are now. Um, like you could take prescription uppers and downers and everything else. I think oh, methamphetamines yeah. were prescribed. Um, yeah, yeah, a lot of this stuff didn't really become like illegal until much later than you think. I mean, there, right. there are all these stories about all the guys playing baseball in the 70s that were just on greenies all the time. Like yeah, constantly. right, exactly. And it wasn't even, I don't even know if it was illegal or, or what, or nobody knew it was bad for you or anyway. Sorry, I cut yeah, you off. Yeah, so no, 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 that's fine. I was just going to say that that you know he let led kind of a parallel life. Like Hemingway was a hard drinker. We talked about that. Yeah. You know, he was a hard drinker, and he shot himself in Idaho. Yep. He was head off at his cabin. So here he is in Aspen. And like we said Pretty before, good. what else do you do in Idaho? You know, yeah, I, Colorado. I just, not that far away, right? Sort of the same. Yeah, it's right next door. You yeah. Know? Pretty much. So, you know. Well, yeah. I mean, there's Aspen. He was he owned a little ranch outside of Aspen. The thing that I admire about both Hemingway, Hemingway way more so, maybe fifty times to the extent of Hunter S. Thompson, is uh-huh. that they're they're out there and they're writing and they're intellectuals. They're smart guys, but they're out there living and like experiencing mm-hmm. life. They're not sitting back somewhere and writing about the world in the abstract. These are people that, to their detriment, are out there living lives. And I just that I. I don't know if there's anybody like that anymore. I don't, I don't know if there's anybody today that combines intellectualism, and high quality art with like really living. And also, I hate to say this today in 2022, but they're very, they're very much men. They're very much like, they like cars and trucks and guns and hunting and like yeah. all this dude stuff that like, if you're a writer today in 2022, that's not an option. There's no writers today that are that masculine or that traditionally masculine. I'm- I'm you know, I'm pretty mad. I am pretty masculine. I'm just just letting you know. Right. Well, I, I, right. You, know, you know, my I, I know I drive a minivan, but yeah. it's a masculine it's a masculine minivan. You think Hemingway, you think Hunter S. Thompson <laughs> would have been caught dead driving a minivan. You think when, you, real, when you realize how convenient it is when picking up the kids? I, hey, know? I'm just saying, do you think <laughs> do you think Ernest Hemingway would have taken his his Cub Scout troop, his kids' Cub Scout troop? And like taking them on a tour of a battleship. No, there's no. Well, way. if he did, he would. One thing he would have been. He would have used a minivan. I'm telling you that. <laughs> it would have helped. No, yes, but it's. You um, know what? I, you're going to hate this. Uh, I don't know if you'd claim intellectual, but I think there are a few. I think like Joe Rogan nowadays. I don't even know if he's an artist. Well, I mean, he's a comedian, and I guess that's an art form. Intellectual, okay, but but he's not an intellectual. I mean, it's not, it's not, right. it's not a right. I know. I see what, I see what you're saying, but see at the same time though, we don't Joe Rogan, right. Joe Rogan is almost like, it's exactly what I'm talking about. Like he's like, he's very dude, right. Very traditional dude, but he's like a meathead. 
you know, like he's not. No, he like he he, hunt, he hunts and he he does. He right. does that's what I mean. No, there are still people like that. But I'm saying if you combine, you talk to Hunter S. Thompson, the guy is a, like a college educated, smart guy. Yeah. But he's just like this maniac, too. And I love I, yeah. I I'm I'm very intoxicated by that combination. It's it's the right. way that I would like, like I would envision myself. It's not what I actually am. In reality, I'm like a dad. I'm very chill. But like, right. I would like right. to be an intellectual maniac. Like I like that's 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 interesting to yeah. me. That's compelling to me. But well, um, I, I think another I'm another too big, much on the soft side. You know? I think another big difference is though that uh, we don't have rock star writers anymore. You know, we really right. don't. But the reason we, have, we don't because you mentioned I think the rock star. I think the rock star died with Kurt Cobain. I think that was. I think that's when oh, people maybe. stopped. There were no more like badass rock stars after that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and, I don't know about Kurt Cobain. The guy shot himself. Also. Yeah. Oh, this, is this our suite? Are we doing a suite of like people who shot themselves? <laughs> I don't, I by the guess, way, by I the way, the long-term listeners of Toasting the Classics, we're going to put together a bundle of all the episodes we've done about guys that shot themselves. Like, right. I that'll think be our Christmas. There's uh, about uh, 15 of them. That'll be our Christmas special. Christmas special. One yes, after exactly, listen yeah. to it when you're by yourself and you have no family. Pour yourself some eggnog and, uh, and grease up the shotgun. And, yeah, know. yeah. Get yourself a couple of big cans of Bud Ice and, uh, you know. Have a good time. Um, yeah, no, you know I think. It, you uh, know what it costs to get a Bud Light in the bar next door to my house? How much? It's it's a, it's five dollars. I was looking at for the a, list of beers, and I was for like, a Bud Light. for a Bud Light, and I was like, I was like, oh, oh there's a cheap, there's a cheap beer over there. And I was like, oh, it's like a Bud Light. I mean, that's five dollars. <laughs> yeah. I know for a Bud Light. So you mentioned Kerouac. You mentioned Burroughs. I mean, these right. guys were were insane intellectuals. You're right. Um, yeah. Heming before them, you had Hemingway, uh, you had Fitzgerald, you know, um, you had again insane. Apparently, uh, Fitzgerald was, uh, was Thompson's favorite. He loved oh, okay. the Great There's, there's, yeah. according to him, there's a connection between fear and loathing and the Great Gatsby. And hmm. I had a little trouble. I was like, I don't really, I think Fitzgerald could write Hunter S. Thompson under the table any day of the week. I don't, I don't think it's writing. writing. I was just but, what, where I went. But I think, but I think was what was a, similar was theme, about that is that the Ga Great Gatsby is a post-mortem on a decadent epoch, right? Right. It's like this was the 20s. The 20s were crazy. And that's how Fitzgerald really lived. You know, they had all these yeah. bacchanals at his house and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think Thompson is doing a, a post-mortem on the 60s in the same sort of way. Maybe. So, I think the Gatsby was also kind of a, a statement on the American dream, so yes. to speak, because yes. as it turns out, yeah. You know, Gatsby was a total fraud and right. Vegas right. is a total fraud, right? So if that's the American oh. dream, you know, uh, if that's the American, if they're, if they're there to find the American dream in a place that, that has a circus, you know, I mean, how insane would that have been to go circus, to circus or, circus when it was new and shiny and you were either drunk or completely beaked out of your mind and you're yep. walking around, there's trapeze above, above you. I mean, that must've been absolutely insane. I can tell you. The you know? last time I was in Las Vegas, I did end up across the street from Circus Circus, just uh -huh. looking at it and like uh -huh. my mouth hanging open, just being like, what yeah. is that? What is happening? I, I went in there. I, went ago, in, I can't even imagine. You know? I went in there one time and it was, it's worse than you think now. <laughs> it, it's, it is, it is terrible in, in yeah. all respects because it's become such a grinder joint, you know? They you actually, you, know, you, mean you, go in, you mean you go in there and you get on grinder and you meet a dude? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like low roller, not high oh, roller, okay. low <laughs> roller grinders, man. And uh, everything smells like smoke and puke and 
It's Ugh. just disgusting. Yeah. They have, uh, you know, those, maybe I shouldn't say it, but those, those, those buses that go from like Mexico to LA, you used to see them down here all the time. They um, yeah. go from yeah. like El Paso, the border of Mexico, yeah, sure. and yeah. go to Los Angeles. Well, one of their stop, their stop in Vegas is at the at Circus Circus. 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 Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so why? Why? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, and I, I, it was just so sad and terrible. It was late and we were really drunk. And uh, we're like, okay. we walked in and we're like, we got to just make exactly what they did. We just made a circuit. Well, you saw it. it. Was, you saw it. That's it, worth doing. That's worth it doing. It was completely insane. So, so I, I think in that case, like, you know, Gatsby's a fraud and Vegas is a fraud, you know. Vegas is is but it, so but Vegas in one is, sense Vegas is a fraud but like if you don't know that when you go to Vegas what well, okay let me finish like, let me let me let me finish let me finish okay. Gatsby is a fraud as it turns out right right but by all appearances he's not right. you know he's he's a he's a seemed like a, a very well to do well educated well traveled person who's never been anywhere he's just a you know he's just right. a criminal but the appearance he sets the appearance like this is somebody that she wants to marry you know, this is something that she could see herself with, right? right. He's well healed, everything else. Yeah, that's what Vegas is. Vegas has this appearance of the American dream, right? It is. It's a, it's a, the appearance of everything that's good about America. You have wealth. You have you know bright lights. You have excess. Everything I'm that America's saying, supposed to have. I'm not saying I haven't enjoyed sometimes in Las Vegas, but Las Vegas. I'm not saying that either. It I'm represents to me everything I'm, I do not like about America. And I'm I just saying them. that I, I see a, a big I see, American, but I see a parallel there. That's all I'm saying. Is uh, yeah, no, 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 no. There's a big parallel. I'm just saying to me, Vegas is like it's it's you concentrate all the worst stuff about America yeah. in one place. Although to some extent, I guess the like libertine nature of it, like anything goes, I kind of dig that. Like that's fine. I get that. But but it's just all the glitz and the, and the money and everything to some extent. I don't know. That's just, uh, I don't like that stuff. Uh, and like I said, I'm a big America guy. Like I'm a defender of America to this day. Like I like this country, but mm-hmm. that is some of the things that are kind of ugly about it. And yeah. I feel like if you go there and you think this is wonderful, like just, if you go to Vegas and you're like, everything about this place is wonderful. Like I'm probably uh, not, I'm probably not going to be into it. Right. I met, I met some, uh, I was in flying out of Memphis. I was at these at the bar with these two Aussies, and they were taking a tour of America. They wanted to see America, right? And I said, "Oh, that's cool." And so they're going to Memphis. And I said, uh, "You know what brings in Memphis?" Well, we had to see Graceland. They're big Elvis fans. Yeah. I was like, "Oh, okay." So, in your tour to see America, where else are you going, or have you been? And he said, "Well, we started in New York, okay, and then we came to Memphis, and next we're going to New Orleans, and then we're going to Las Vegas." And then we're going to Los Angeles. Okay. And I said, so you're going, that's America, New York, yeah. you know, Graceland, New Orleans, Las Vegas, Los Angeles. That's America. You're going to get some good and some bad on that trip. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I learned to love Los Angeles. I, I get LA a lot more than I used to. As an East coast guy, I just didn't like Los Angeles. I I've been there a bunch of times when I lived out West and I, I realized, you know, LA's, got some really cool stuff about it and i actually sure. went to vegas with a more open mind than the first time but i'm just there. saying that if you if you're going to if you're going to pick five places to represent america those are the least representative of america well let's be honest the places that represent america is you're going to go to the suburbs of columbus ohio and stay at some right. Stuff. Right. No, no, nobody right. from australia is going to do that you know, right i know like, and maybe right. that's the point that, but maybe that's the point right 
Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, well, we, we know that as America. They missed, huh? they missed some of our, they missed some of the worst of us, which is oh, Miami. Yeah. I mean, come on. South, the, South Beach. The dangling sack beneath America where all of our pus and bile <laughs> collects. Could, they could have gone to South Beach and worn a G string and, and, uh, there you go. There you a go. Speedo, I guess. Anyway. I think we're far enough along to talk about our biggest surprise. Did you, uh, all right. I'll let you go first. This anybody? is my pick. Okay. So for biggest surprise, in the one interview I read, I was surprised to learn that Hunter S. Thompson, and I have two things. This is a minor surprise. Hunter S. Hunter S. Thompson was staying in the Watergate the night of the break-in. I didn't he know was that. in the building when that happened. Anyway, huh. he was apologizing for, for not uh, stopping the burglary and, and catching the yeah. That's funny. But he said it was one of his favorite places to stay in D.C. But the big surprise I found, and this, again, is kind of minor, but the list of drugs that he talks about in the book, he talks about something called adrenochrome, which right. is a drug that you take from the pineal gland of a human being. And you take it and it's supposed to have all these crazy effects and talked about it. And apparently the idea of adrenochrome and the idea of a drug being taken from the pineal gland is something Hunter S. Thompson made up in this book. There's no basis to it whatsoever. It's right. something he right. invented. And apparently, and I might cut this because I don't know how crazy this part of the story is, but apparently the whole QAnon thing where they're like putting children in cabinets and sending them around the country, part of that is that supposedly they're supposed to be harvesting these children for adrenochrome drugs from their pineal glands. I was like, <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. I was like, so Hunter S. Thompson invented a thing. Yeah. And now it's become... I don't know. It was just like the, the connection between those two things. That is, that is fascinating. Like, I, I, I need to go know, read that, that one. Very, yeah, it was a I very need to read that one. Anyway. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. cool. So my biggest surprise was how this whole thing kind of started. So The, the gonzo journalism thing in general? No, no. I, I, no, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. So, okay. So in, his, in the book, he calls his kind of partner in crime. He's a 300-pound Samoan who is his attorney. And in, in real life, there was a guy named Oscar Zeta Acosta, right. who was a, an advocate, like, a, like an activist for Mexican-American rights. Yeah, he's like a Chicano. Yeah, you know, Chicano rights in the 1970s, right, 60s right. and 70s. And apparently there was another rights activist that was involved that was a, a colleague of, of Oscar uh, Acosta who was assassinated. In Los Angeles, the whole going to so what Thompson wanted to interview Acosta, but Acosta feared for his life because his right. friend had been assassinated. So that's why they went to Vegas. That was the whole pretext. So, so Hunter yeah, they, did. They have, didn't want to set off a zoot suit riot. Or, right. Yeah. Or right. Well, he did have the assignment from Sports Illustrated to cover that that motorcycle race. So right. he used that as a pretext. You come along with me, and I'll interview you for the story that he was doing about the uh, Chicano movement. And that was the whole pretext for it. And he needed more time apparently afterwards to, to talk to him. So that's why he did the second. They went again the second time using that convention as sort of, again, right. the pretext to go. So it was really interesting that there really was this guy. He was, he, I'm looking at a picture of him now. He's a big dude. And there, there's a, a famous picture of the two of them at a table. I think it was at the Circus Circus. His friend is wearing one glove. Z Z uh, Zapata or whatever is wearing one glove. Oh, yeah. yeah a, it, the table in front of them, they've got drinks scattered all over the place. Yeah, I know this picture. Why is oh, he wearing one glove? But it's so I great. don't know. I don't know. It's like one, but it's like, it's not even a driving glove. It's like a, a thick 
like leather glove that you'd wear during the winter or something. It's like a the kind of glove you'd put like something heavy in if you're going to beat yeah. somebody. Like it's a big right. industrial work glove. Right. Like, yeah. And so he's dressed in this pinstripe suit. Uh, I think that was like at the uh, narcotics convention. He said that he was dressed like that. So, so these are black anyway, so, and white photos, but for some reason, all of the photos, Hunter S. Thompson looks like he's wearing one of those neon multicolored jackets from the 90s. <laughs> right. You know what I'm talking right. about? Like right. the windbreakers that yeah. have like horrible colors to them. That yeah. It looks like a black and white photo of one of those jackets. I don't know what jacket he's wearing. It's got multi multicolored patches on it. Yeah, so the decision is, um, are we toasting this class? It's up to you. God, this is a tough one for me. I have been like tangential and 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 sort of had a finger dipped in the Hunter S. Thompson mythos most of my life. Like uh-huh. some of my friends are really big in journalism, like in the journalism classes, and they're on a school newspaper and stuff. So Hunter S. Thompson, we watched the the Bill Murray movie. And I, I read the book when I was pretty young, and I got that, like I said, that anthology that I read, stuff like that. And it always leaves me feeling kind of flat because I don't think the prose, the actual writing is up to, like we compared it to Hemingway. Mm-hmm. I just don't think the writing is, It's it kind of feels like what he described it as, which is just taking a bunch of notes of some crazy stuff he did and like throwing them into the, into the telecast and sending it to the, and sending it to the office and not putting a whole lot of thought into what you're writing. And I don't love that. So I don't know, but I feel like it's important. The guy is, the guy as a persona is important. But would this be, is this the work of Hunter S. Thompson that we would, that we would put up on Mount Rush, on Mount Rushmore of, of uh, Hunter S. Thompson? I mean, this, this, this would be the book, right? This would be, I think this, this would, would be, be the work. Book. Yeah. It's not one of the other things. It's not one of the other things. It's great shark hunts. Uh, there's a couple other works. That you're loading I'm, on the I'm much more trail. interested in reading Hell's Angels. Uh, expose, yeah. actually. I think that would be uh-huh. interesting. So it's really tough. I've had three of these drinks. I've enjoyed mm-hmm. them. <laughs> that's getting me that's you know making filling me with good feelings so i think i'm gonna go ahead and toast all right toast. but it's, it's i'm on the fence i, I don't love this writer uh, but he is an important writer and mm-hmm. if you were going to put together a couple of things from the 60s i think this would probably be in there all right i think william s burroughs is a better writer i think the naked lunch is a better book um, absolutely well yeah for sure but um, yeah you know, and it, and it would hit some of the same notes, but I think it's fair to include this in the in the pantheon. So I think I think I'm going to go for it. I think I'm going to. All right. Well, cheers. Cool. Sounds awesome. Cheers. Unfortunately, I drank everything I had to drink, so I think <laughs> that's all right. But uh, all right. Well, cool. there we go. So this is now a classic, according to us. If anybody wants to read about the 1960s, we'll we'll do a. Uh, I'll put together a group of podcasts that are all about the things that happened in uh, between 1970 and 1974, which I think is what, 90% of what we've talked about on the show? <laughs> it seems like it, yeah. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and say this is a classic and uh, I'm gonna sign off. Uh, this is Dave MacArthur for Toasting the Classics. Peace this out. Is, uh, this is Clint Lanier with uh, Toasting the Classics. See y'all later. All right, peace. That's it for episode 66 of Toasting the Classics. For those playing along at home, get some soju for our discussion of the best picture winning Parasite. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. Send us show ideas, comments, complaints, and let us know what suite of drugs you're keeping in your briefcases. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at @attractivenuisance. Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics.